Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. There once lived a man named Lord Tim Bell. Lord Bell invented his own job. He traveled the world, making politicians and governments look good, even when they weren't. He was credited with bringing the world of advertising to politics, starting with Margaret Thatcher in his native Britain in the 1980s. Lord Bell got very, very rich, working behind the scenes, burnishing the reputations of politicians and companies. For example, he worked for the apartheid government of South Africa. He didn't really care whether the people he worked for did bad things. That's just not how he thought about it. They always ask me about morality because they're all convinced that I do things that are immoral. And I don't. I mean, I may do things that are amoral, but they're not immoral. Lord Tim Bell co-founded his own company called Bell Pottinger. And then one day, he returned to South Africa. He was there to help three brothers, the Guptas. 
They were making a lot of money from President Jacob Zuma's government, money that rightly belonged to the South African people. Bell Pottinger's job was to make them all look good, even if they weren't. And the company was very good at its job. But this is a David versus Goliath story. And here comes David. A news outlet called Daily Maverick got a hold of almost 200,000 emails. The leak showed that Bell Pottinger was exploiting racial divisions to distract everyone from the Zuma government's corruption. The journalists wrote their stories and told the people what Bell Pottinger was up to. And the people fought back. An opposition politician named Fumzilla Van Dam went to London to take on Bell Pottinger with a complaint to the body that governs public relations in the UK. They thought some silly black woman from Africa, from the dark continent of people we've exploited, they come in here. <laughs> um, and I got in there and kicked their ass. <laughs> And so Bell Pottinger fell. This is the tale told in Influence, a new documentary by Diana Neal and Richard Poplack. They are two of the Daily Maverick journalists who reported the Gupta leaks. And it's a story that resonates beyond South Africa and is indicting of more than just Bell Pottinger. Because Lord Tim Bell might have been the most cartoonishly evil of the geopolitical spin doctors, and he might have been the first. But there are plenty more like him who shape the stories we consume. I'm Kasia Mihailovich, in for Jesse Brown. Diana Neal and Richard Poplack spoke to me from South Africa. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Mary Para, Phoebe Cullingham, Jeffrey Marsh, Garrett McArdle, Shannon Cotter, Patrick Davis, Jeff Elliott, and Adrian. Hi, this is Adrian from Kitchener, and I support Canada Land because uh, quality journalism is an essential service, is very important, and it's also very expensive. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, 
and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Do you remember when you first had the idea to start shooting Influence? Absolutely. Uh, it was around June or July of 2017. Uh, my colleagues uh, at Daily Maverick, which is a news outlet here in South Africa, had been working on a massive expose of a tranche of emails. And in that, in those emails uh, was uh, Bell Pottinger, the role that they had been playing in uh, our politics at the time. And Richard was one of the journalists working on that team. I was working alongside the team in a different capacity in kind of a production role. And I said to him, you know, wouldn't it be interesting, you know, if this is the kind of work that they're doing here in South Africa, surely they must be doing work elsewhere in the, in the PR and, I guess, weaponized information realm. Let's look into it and see if we can turn this into a film. I mean, these characters are, are beyond the pale. Uh, they kind of defy uh, reality. Um, and that's kind of where it started. And I think uh, we very quickly realized that there was a much, much bigger story to tell. I think what, what was so interesting about this tranche of emails that we encountered, which, uh, came to be called the Gupta Leaks, uh, was that they told a story not unlike the Paradise Papers or uh, the Panama Papers of a massive collusion between government, in this case, the South African government, but also blue chip multinationals from all over the world. We're talking about the consulting uh, uh, company McKinsey. We're talking about KPMG. We're talking about Bombardier in Canada. I broke a story about their involvement in the South African state. SAP, Lieber in Germany, massive companies in collusion with the state in order to rip off the South African people. So what the Gupta Leaks were about was this massive expose, effectively about how the formal economy is in collusion with the informal economy. And there's this gangster state that pertains uh, in South Africa that I would argue is pretty much how business is done in many parts of the world right now. I'm wondering if you, maybe Richard, want to talk a little bit about the Bombardier connection to the Gupta brothers. I know it's not in the film. Yeah, the Bombardier story doesn't play a role in the film, but what effectively had happened is that, like most rich families, the Guptas were dissatisfied with their transportation situation and were looking for a new private jet. And they cast around for a good deal, and lo and behold, the new Bombardier, I can't remember the exact designation of the of the aircraft, was going for a good price. Uh, they cast around for financing. What uh, They were unable to get financing either in India or in the United States. But the, uh, the EDC in Canada, the Export uh, Development Corporation in Canada, were happy to help uh, fund the $45 million private jet. So uh, the, <laughs> the extrapolation from, from the leaks, and, and this was very, very solid, is the fact that the Guptas were... The EDC and, and, to an extent, Canadian taxpayers were going to help the Guptas buy their Bombardier private jet. And part of the result of that investigation 
is that we were able to add to the wide body of work that has also come out from the Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, etc., that export development corporations like the EDC contribute to trillions of dollars in dark money filtering around the world because there's no accountability for this money. Mm. They're not like real banks where proper due diligence is done. If they had simply Googled Gupta once, they would have understood that this was a politically connected family that you did not want to touch. But lo and behold, uh, the loans were, were, were extended. The jet was purchased. It was flown around. When the Guptas defaulted on their payments, the EDC had to scramble like uh, you know, a, re- a bounty hunter television show hmm. to try and get the jet uh, back to Canada. It's a disgraceful story. Were you filming the newsroom while you were talking about the the leak when it happened, or is that something that you recreated for the film? Yeah, we we started to film the Gupta leaks. You know, we we really had a sense that it would be, I mean, maybe historic. Well, no, I guess it was historic. You know, we 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 knew that we had a massive, um, we were onto something big, and that it might have country changing ramifications if if we pulled it off and you got to understand the pressure at the time um you know the, there had been a huge uh, process i should say to get the leaks to branko brickage the editor of daily maverick uh, the whistleblowers obviously they weren't sure who to trust it was a hugely risky business uh, and so by the time it reached him you know everybody was on edge we had a security guard kind of guarding us uh, and we weren't sure what was going to happen if if there was going to be a, a huge kind of a reprisal but um Sorry, you were actually afraid of of like a some kind of physical intervention. Yeah, absolutely. We were we were very afraid of it. We we hired security to come and and kind of sit in our little dingy offices in Cape Town at that time. We were on the top floor of of this old building in the in the center of Cape Town. And actually, two of the journalists working on the team, uh, two senior journalists, uh, were actually mugged two days into the the big get together uh, to go through the leaks. Uh, and so people were very much on edge. I think all the journalists were, were being extremely careful. We had protocols in place uh, to protect the data. So yeah, I mean, it, we, we, you know, we turned the cameras on uh, in a, a somewhat hurried, hurried fashion because we, we really didn't have time to think it through, but we, we just felt that there was something important to the story. Uh, and I'm glad we did because I think it creates a sense of authenticity of, of the, the confusion and the, and the excitement at the time. And I, I'm not sure Diana is giving herself enough credit here because, um, you, you know, I, I think we all understood what the second we opened up the leaks that what this was was probably the biggest media story in, in South African history. On top of that, you, you know, the genesis of the film is, is Diana. I mean, she came to me with the idea and, and asked me to join her uh, on this um, rather rocky journey. Uh, wh- one of the interesting things that Branko did and Branko is, is Serbian and, uh, and, and speak like mafia man and said he'd always referred to leaks as the big one. And what he did was, was um, understand that as an institution, Daily Maverick was not good enough. We were not skilled enough to do this by ourselves. We had some great writers and some great journalists, but there were others um, out there with greater institutional memory than, than we had who would help us put this story together. So two other news houses, one, a group of probably among the world's best investigative journalists, an outfit called Amabungani, and also a, ma- a major media house here called News 24. They were brought into the fold as well. So effectively, what Branco did was build a media conglomerate. 
So it would almost be like the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and Canada Land working together on breaking this this massive story. Um, and uh, that lack of ego, that understanding that in the age of Twitter, the scoop means far less than real, deep, effective, meaningful, rock-solid journalism. That is what made the Gupta League story the Gupta League story. Not that we broke it. Had we just broken it and another media house broke it the day before we did, they are the guys that broke it. No one remembers they had anything to do with it. Right. So then if there are a bunch of companies involved with this, I wonder what made you zero in on Bell Pottinger? Um, I, I think I think it helps to have a little bit of context of what has happened to South Africa since Mandela. I, I'm not sure how many Canadians are familiar with what has what has occurred, but since Mandela's presidency ended, uh, corruption in the country has sort of uh, grown, metastatized, gotten worse. And in 2009, we ended up with a gentleman named Jacob Zuma as president, and uh, corruption sort of became the formal way of doing business in the country. Behind him, his Rasputins, if you will, were uh, a trio of brothers named the Guptas, Indian foreign nationals who came to the country understanding that we're a little weak on IT and uh, came in and ingratiated themselves with the ruling African National Congress and uh, picked a horse. And the horse they picked was Jacob Zuma. Uh, and part of part of what I think people were really struggling with was this sense that there was something underhanded, something unseen, some malevolent force that was guiding uh, a sense of um, of real um, kind of fear. And uh, there was a, there a lot of racial tension at the time, um, both online and uh, kind of in public discourse, political speeches, um, and no one could really put their finger on it. Uh, once it was revealed in this, uh, this tranche of emails that Bal Pottinger, this notorious uh, public relations and reputation management company based in the United Kingdom, was being paid £100,000 a month by our former very corrupt president, Jacob Zuma, and his financial backers, uh, we realized that they that their job had been very successful in in creating this sense of um, you know discord and um, yeah racial tension in our country uh, and so it's it seemed pertinent to what was happening elsewhere in the world at the time. This was post the the Trump 2016 election in which we saw similar techniques being used and it just seemed like the story or a story of our times to understand who was behind it, uh, where was this coming from, what was the history of it and, and where would it lead us. And to understand a little bit more about what that campaign was, what that malevolent force was, can you tell me about the white monopoly capital campaign that ran in South Africa? The famous white monopoly capital campaign, absolutely. So by the time we're in 2015, 2016, the Guptas are effectively running Jacob Zuma's kitchen cabinet. They're actually picking and choosing cabinet ministers, in some cases telling cabinet ministers that they now have the job. The Guptas run a company called Oak Bay Capital, and Oak Bay Capital's entire pitch is that they, they're in almost every single sector of the economy. They're effectively helping to run the South African state, and they are making billions in the process. But the problem is, is that the press, including ourselves, are onto them. So what they do is reach out to the world's most notorious public relations firm, Bell Pottinger, bring them into the country in December 2015 and say, what can you do to run a distraction campaign that will help us throw the press off the scent? 
So Bell Pottinger scratches their heads and they say to themselves, and this meeting was actually um, orchestrated by, uh, not orchestrated, but was run by by Lord Bell, who ran the company and was one of the co-founders. And they came up with a a campaign of racial divisiveness. And that's where everything totally exploded. The term white monopoly capital and radical economic transformation, which are mouthfuls, Mm -hmm. really, but they they come from a period of time in South Africa, uh, which was pre-democracy, that obviously speak to the issues then, which were that the the majority of economic wealth, or indeed most of the economic wealth, uh, was in the hands of white people. Um, And those terms were obviously very political at the time, but had kind of hadn't been used uh, since 1994 when we had our first elections. And so Bell Pottinger found those that, that terminology in, in kind of our political lexicon uh, and realized that they had a huge bearing on what, what had, you know, what had become so obvious in our country that inequality had not been dealt with and that economic power still rested in the hands uh, of, of uh, white people. And so it was a very useful tool for them to kind of uh, rejuvenate these these terms and use them uh, to sow this discord and, and create this uh, this campaign, uh, you know, as as with so much of of uh, so called fake news or disinformation, this kernel of truth, this you know this basis in reality in the, in the lived experiences of so many people, weaponized, um, you know, to 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 do the opposite, basically. Yeah, and what was the effect of that campaign in the country? You might imagine that knowing more about this or fighting against white monopoly capital is a good thing. But what was the negative outcome of that? Well, what what we've been fighting for in this country for so many years is a fairer, more equitable nation. That's not going to happen with a PR campaign. That's going to happen with real policy change from the top. The ANC had been running this country by that time for 23 years. There was plenty of time to, to, to institute policies that would be more equitable, that would be fairer, and that would divide the wealth in a way that makes much more sense. It wasn't going to change from a divisive, inflammatory PR campaign. And that's what irritated people so much. And that's what pissed South Africans off. And, and we're talking white and black. Yes, we have our racial problems. Yes, we have this massive um, inequity in our economy. But there was absolutely no way that South Africans, and this cuts across racial lines, were going to accept a PR campaign from a British company that told us that we were strangers. Um, and that's and that's where Bell Pottinger came a cropper. Right. And what were some of the tools that they used for this campaign online? If you look at the emails, and, and there are extensive emails kind of detailing their work, which is obviously the basis for the, for the beginning of our reporting, um, you can see you can see their campaigns start to form. So it starts out with the usual things: marketing material, advertising campaigns, working for Oak Bay, which again was the company that the Guptas uh, ostensibly hired them uh, to to uh, to spin for. And then you know the emails to the legal companies that they worked with, like Shillings in London, very famous, very aggressive law firm. You know, with the cease and desist letters to journalists who had written something mildly negative about the Guptas or questioning them in the news. And, and so you start to see the tactic of what one of our sources described as the one-two punch, 
where they come in and obfuscate with PR uh, and with press releases that kind of hide or, or, or ch you know change or, or or cloud the details, and then the legal left cut once uh, you know journalists start to question it, mm -hmm. um, and then you start writing political speeches for um, members of the ANC, starting to infuse this this divisive language using terms like white monopoly capital. President used it in some of his speeches. The ANC Youth League. I suppose towards the end of 2016, 2017, around the time you were seeing um, the same techniques being used by firms like Cambridge Analytica in the United States and in Brexit, um, you know, we, we started to see a social media campaign, uh, which well, Pottinger has always denied they were involved in. They said that the Guptas outsourced that to to another company based in India and that they weren't involved. But, but of course, it was all part of the same campaign. Um, and really, in that case, it was just this, a very primitive at that point um, troll campaign, yeah. uh, creating false accounts and attacking people online, inundating uh, people's timelines with um, with fake you know fake information and and attacking um, language. It became overwhelming, so you could see the build up over time um, and the, the various different strands that they had um, in place to try to seed this messaging through the public discourse. And Richard, before the cache of emails came to the Daily Maverick and before you could see what was going on with this campaign, how did the South African press receive it? Well, I, there, there had been a leaked document about six or seven months before the Gupta leaks broke, uh, which uh, detailed work that Bell Pottinger was doing around Southern Africa. Uh, no, no one, to the best of my knowledge, was, was able to um, ascertain the provenance of that uh, of that leaked document, so we were all a little wary about going out um, and and saying definitively that Bell Pottinger was was doing that message uh, that messaging. I had intimated as much in a piece in February 2017. I got a series of cease and desists from Bell Pottinger, mm -hmm. um, which we ignored and were able to ignore right up until the point that the Gupta leaks broke. But there was an understanding. It was an open secret that they were working for an, for Oak Bay. It was an open secret that they were doing works that would benefit Zuma's faction. And it was an open secret that they were running this white monopoly uh, capital campaign. So what it really came down to was us finding the definitive proof that would nail them to the mast. And that would not have happen, happened, unfortunately, if we hadn't have come across the leak. So as this stuff all started to escalate to real violence on the streets, real violence perpetrated against journalists, and of course the usual, um, almost at this point, banal um, misogyny against female journalists, had it not escalated to that point, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we would have looked for it as desperately as we did. The leaks came as something of a, I don't want to say a godsend, but, uh, but pretty close. And can you speak more to that? I'm wondering, how does violence against journalists play into the kind of unrest that was fomented by white monopoly capital? Well, that campaign, let me say, was was very smart. They, you know, I think they did their homework and that they understood it. They, they were looking at who were the the kind of the fermenters at that point, uh, the, the guys with the big, the big mouths who were saying uh, the most radical things. And they came across a political organization called Black First Land First by uh, an activist called Andile Ngaitama, who was kind of one of the loudest and most divisive voices in the country. 
Richard and I, I think we'll both agree a lot of a lot of his uh, his discourse is really quite theatrical. You know, he, he does a lot of it for for the attention. Um, but was was he was using the Gupta media platforms to get his own kind of anti-white um, racially divisive messaging out already. And so they kind of just joined forces. And, you know, we believe that they were that they were paying him to to kind of spread this messaging. And so you had these protests where they were coming out in, you know, in numbers, not massive, but 30, 40 people saying, you know, kill the whites, that kind of sloganism. And then it, it, it actually escalated at one point where they, uh, a group of them went to the home of one of uh, kind of one of the, the bigger name journalists in the country. Um, and it had the police not been there, you know, I, I'm not sure what would have happened, but they were certainly threatening, um, you know, pushing him around and a, a colleague of ours as well, Tim Cohen, uh, pushing them around quite, quite aggressively. Um, and, you know, of course, you, you can only assume that they that they'll say they'll do what they say. And right. at the time, the messaging was, you know, kill the whites um, down with journalists, that kind of thing. So it got it did. It got it got very scary at one point. And I think women journalists in particular, our colleague Feriel Hafiji was was horribly, horribly mm. treated online. She was bombarded with terrible messaging, um, very abusive death threats, rape threats for for months uh, as part of this campaign. Right. And to give people outside of South Africa an idea of its place in the journalism ecosystem of the country, can you tell me about Daily Maverick? Absolutely. Well, I think th there's a couple of things that are important to note about the journalistic or, or at least the press ecosystem in South Africa. The first is that it's wildly competitive. The second that is that it's quite sophisticated. I'd say it's a much more competitive and uh, dare I say it, more sophisticated market than, than, than Canada. And uh, it's, it, the press here is, is a battlefield. It, it really is. One of the, the more important things to note is that the perception of media in South Africa is that it's white-owned and white-run. That isn't the case, but there's still, I would argue, uh, not enough demographic representation for the black majority in media in South Africa. So that was certainly one point that the Guptas were able to attack us on. And they themselves had built up a media empire, which constituted a television station and a newspaper that was rabidly pro-Zuma. And so we were on one front locked in a battle with this entity, which was sucking in hundreds of millions of rands worth of state funding to effectively act as a media front that would battle what we could you know, loosely describe as the mainstream media. Right. But on the other hand, there were some, there were some very large, very well-run, uh, massive media organizations. Daily Maverick functions at the bottom of that uh, or around that. We're very, very and proudly independent. But legitimately, we are perceived as white-run and white-owned. And the face of the Daily Maverick in the film is Marianne Tham. She's such a great character in the vein of the kind of dogged, somewhat eccentric journalist. And then my own inner voice saying, well, he wanted to be a journalist. You're a big mouth, you, you know. You wanted to tell everybody, you need to get a journalist. Well, now you've got to do it. Now's the real thing. Now you've got to grow up. Put on your big girl panties. Thank God there were people around me who had bigger girl panties than me. At one point, you even see her like pushing a cassette into a tape deck of her car. Um, I wondered why is Marianne the face of the team that broke this story for the film? She glommed on to Belle Pottinger, I would say, very early on. She was probably one of the first journalists, which is 
totally in her nature. Marianne is one of the best journalists I've ever come across. Um, and she's a true credit to the profession in that she understands, you know, she just, she has a nose for bullshit. Uh, excuse the, the, the phrase. That's allowed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she just, she's very well sourced. She knows a lot of people. Uh, and she, she kind of saw what was going on, I think, uh, way earlier than anybody else did. So we just felt that it would be unfair for anybody else to, to play that role. And in that way, she represented all of us. Uh, you know, I think that the team that was working on the Gupta Leaks was an incredible team of about, Rich, 20, 20 people, I'd say. 17. 17, um, you know, from from all different kind of walks of journalism. We had a, a forensic, what would you call it, a forensic accountant um, mm -hmm. on the team who, who still remains anonymous to this day uh, from the corporate world who was helping with the numbers. Wow. And But certainly Marianne, as, as a veteran journalist who also worked during apartheid, you know, she just, she was the intuitive pick. And plus, she's an incredible character as, as I think comes across, hopefully, in the film. Uh, and there are a few uh, there are few journals like her at the Daily Maverick. There's one thing that's interesting to note about Marianne. In 21st century newsrooms, you furlough your older journalists. And I think that's a massive, massive mistake. Uh, Marianne is quite some years older than me, but her institutional memory and her institutional knowledge is vast. Right. And I'm not sure we've been able to negotiate our way around the Gupta Leaks had we not had journalists who had actually acted as, as, as journalist activists, I would argue, during the apartheid years. I, I, I loathe the term journalist activist, and I'm not one. But I would argue that during something like apartheid, you couldn't help be one if you had anything that resembled a conscience. Marianne was one of those people. She was able to draw a historical lineage between the two regimes that was enormously helpful. And I think it's a huge credit to Daily Maverick and last point, she's incredibly proud of that car and that tape deck simply because she's had them for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, everybody says, why did you fake that tape deck in the movie? We're like, fake the tape deck? Uh, yes, I love I, I love it because, I mean, she is a great character, but she's also, you know, the dogged journalist in this kind of David versus Goliath story. It's a beautiful portrait, but it's not a particularly flattering one to Tim Bell. So how do did you get him to agree to be interviewed for this documentary? Um, I was dispatched by uh, my, my good friend here, Diana, and our team late in 2016 to go track down Bell, introduce myself, and convince him to be in the film. So uh, London is not my favorite city in the world by a long stretch. And off I went, dutifully. And I slowly tracked him down, got the number, sent him an SMS. He invited me over. We, we sat down and had a chat. I told him exactly what we wanted to do. I said this would be a lengthy process of, of interviews. I wanted, I, I, you know, he would have more than ample time to tell his own truth. But whether or not he participated, the film was going to get made. And on the spot, he agreed. We tentatively agreed to do three days in London early the next year. Uh, this was 2018. And we trundled off to London with our kit in tow and ended up shooting for five days. Um, he invited us into our, uh, his home. Um, he had more than enough time. Over 25 hours worth of interviews were shot. Wow. He had more than enough time to tell his own truth. Could you just give us the rogues gallery of clients that Tim Bell worked with throughout his career that kind of fall into this um, 
geopolitical influence category of of PR that he championed? Yeah, I suppose that the most famous um, of of Tim's early jobs was working with the successors, the right wing successors to Augusto Pinochet in Chile. Uh, a really, really bad bunch of very wealthy Chileans who wanted the right-wing government to extend uh, into the so-called democratic era uh, in Chile. Bell worked uh, with Margaret Thatcher's widely loathed uh, son, Mark Thatcher, who was connected to the UK's biggest ever and very, very corrupt arms sale to Saudi Arabia called the Al-Yamama campaign. Most famously, I would argue, they worked uh, in their latter years They worked for uh, the Americans in Iraq crafting a nation-building campaign that amounted to at least $540 million in billings uh, that sought to build a sort of uh, weak nation-building campaign in Iraq post the war. Yeah, there were also a number, I would say probably half of the regimes in Africa, most of which were uh, were dubious and some, you know, whether it corruption or violence against citizens, propping up regimes in Africa. They also He also worked for Asma al-Assad in Syria um, during the beginnings of uh, the civil war, which was downplayed, but still, you know, kind of egregious. Um, where else, Rich? He was uh, outstanding at building what I would call Geopolitical alliances, uh, F.W. de Klerk, the last apartheid um, president here in South Africa, has, uh, has a, uh, an organization that runs very secretive uh, campaigns for world leaders all over the world. He was one of the founding members of that. So the list is effectively endless. I mean, when I say we could sit here all night, yeah. we, we, we literally could. Did he end up seeing a final cut of the film? No, Kasha, he actually, uh, Lord Bell passed away in August last year. Right. He was diagnosed with vascular Parkinson's uh, a few months after we sat down with him. So we were fortunate to to get him, uh, I think, before he really started to deteriorate. It's it's one of those things, right? The relationship was initially good, and I think we, we planned to shoot more with him uh, in January the following year. And then suddenly things turned sour, I think, because there was a lot of pressure from a legal standpoint, the company ha- having gone into liquidation was being kind of dismantled by, you know, uh, British firms trying to, you know, trying to recoup what they could. So all the partners were in for hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, and I think things just got really stressful and uh, and difficult for both him and his wife. And before we knew it, we, we were no longer on speaking terms. Uh, it got quite it got quite hairy at some point. And so we haven't really spoken to, to Jackie, his wife, uh, since then. There was no conceivable way in which this film was going to be a hagiography. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I'd felt we were clear on that. But what was one of the more, I would say, distasteful aspects of, of Lord Bell's um, persona, I suppose, was his loathing of the press, who he felt was manipulative, perhaps quite rightly so, given the fact that he had manipulated the press for so long as a PR man. I mean, on film was the fact that he and Rupert Murdoch would literally exchange um, information. Exactly. So if there was an editorial that Bell wanted placed in the, in the Rupert Murdoch press in the UK, he would sim- simply send them the copy. I met Rupert Murdoch during the second Thatcher election. He rang up one day and he said, I want to talk to you. You're doing Thatcher's campaign, yes? Well, I want you to succeed. Yes. Well, it, can my newspapers help? I'm sure they can. Um, if you ring me and tell me what you think 
they should be saying, I'll make sure they say it. I said, okay, thank you very much. And so it's kind of extraordinary at how, uh, at how much he hated bad press. Um, well, he hated so, the left-wing press. Yeah, and, and that's <laughs> More the other than thing. The right. um, yeah, he, he, he absolutely hated The Guardian um, and he hated the lefty press. Uh, and But, you know, the lefty press was largely defined as anyone who disagreed with him. I mean, you guys disagreed with him a lot, uh, or at least there's one scene that I'm thinking about where we see Tim Bell saying he never met or talked to the Chilean dictator Pinochet. And someone off camera, maybe it was you, Richard, interrupts him and he says, but you did meet him. They keep on saying he worked for Pinochet. I did not. I never met Pinochet. I never spoke to Pinochet. But you did, you did meet him. I did meet him. I met him 10 years earlier. How did Bell react when you contradicted him like that? Well, this is it. It's all, it's all on screen. People, people assume there's a jump cut in, in that particular scene. There's not. And the reason people assume there's a jump cut is because he would pivot from a lie within half a second. Yeah. So... I don't know what they were expecting, but we showed up uh, at his at his premises with, I would argue, about 300 pages worth of briefs on each of the files that, that Bell Pottinger had run. So I, I, I literally, I, I ran the interviewing process with Diana beside me, and we would literally just go through almost in a, in a linear fashion the entire history of his, of his life. And every time uh, he was caught in a porky pie, he, we, would, we would call him on it. And be like, no, that's not what happened. And he would just pivot in an absolute instant. <laughs> I, I, I catch him in a lie. I said, no, you did meet Pinochet. And the next second he says, yes, I did meet Pinochet. Yeah. Did you find he just outright lied? Yeah, he just absolutely lied. And he, I mean, he did it several times. Um, and if you weren't really paying attention, if you didn't know your stuff, you could so easily be thrown off. And you can see he's a master, master at controlling uh, or kind of strategizing the conversation, which I personally found fascinating in that what I think he really got a kick out of was almost testing you as the interview, interviewer. He would, he would throw something out there simply to see whether you had done your research. And if you had and you, you caught him out, he'd respect you for it and he'd answer your question with something truer, maybe not even the truth, but something more true than what he just said, which was mostly an outright lie. Yeah, and so... One thing you might learn from this documentary is that, you know, South Africa, Britain, the United States, we're all caught up in this and Canada, and none of us are really immune to the influence that people like Tim Bell created and wielded around the world. Are we vulnerable to the same influence peddling that's exposed in the documentary? I don't think we realize just how deep this rabbit hole went. You know, I think we had a, a sense of it. Um, but we worked with these fantastic researchers who kind of within six months were saying, well, look, you need to understand that, you know, Tim Bell and the likes of Tim Bell and, other, other, you know, others in the field at the time were using South Africa and by extension Africa as essentially a Petri dish for this new political business that they were running, which was ostensibly to come into new or fledgling democracies that were, you know, trying to get on their feet, going through an election process, spin a whole bunch of, of election uh, guff to, to get them elected, uh, develop the relations out, and then basically sell those relationships on to arms dealers, commodities traders, massive multinational uh, 
corporates and that kind of thing, uh, and 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 create this web of influence and power around the world. And so when I think, you know, when it comes to to this question of of how how deeply involved is a democracy like like Canada's, I, you know. Canada has a, a massive stake in in global commodities and you know in the mining industry for example around the world and you can't help but think that you know what that means is that they're tied very intimately into into this network uh, you know Richard has done extensive work in this regard so he'll be able to to elaborate yeah I, I think Canada's main business is the extractive sector and I think the the um, the choices that you have to make in order to run businesses like that to support businesses like that and and lots of canadian soft money does support uh businesses in the uh in the extractive sector around the world is that you have to compromise what uh one might call canadian values and you have to compromise them all of the time and consistently hmm. without respite and so one of the big things about uh influence the film was without any reference to bullshit buzz terms like the deep state or conspiratorial theories, or anything that we couldn't 100% prove and didn't have um, hard proof of in the leaks. We wanted to show how these networks operate. We want to show how power and money uh, are interchangeable commodities, and that a person like Lord Bell, because of his connections to Margaret Thatcher, was able to wield those, uh, those commodities in ways that were very, very, very transformative. Tim Bell says in the documentary that one of the ways in which the world works is that rich men fund election campaigns. And that's, I mean, that's so obvious in a lot of ways, and it has been that way for a long time. But it, it really hits differently in this film as the machinations of these rich men are exposed. And I was left after watching this with the question in my head that I'll ask you both now. Is this still a democracy that I'm living in? And whether it's Canada or South Africa or Britain, is this still democracy? The short answer is sort of. <laughs> and uh, I, I moderate uh, that from a, a hard no for uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, Canada is a country that is, is, is still run by rule of law. There's an issue, however, of emphasis. And when we think about democracy, what we think about is voting. Um, once every four, five, three, two, however many years, we uh, shovel ourselves into a booth, um, draw an X on a piece of paper, and think that we've done our democratic duty. That is the absolute bare minimum of what democratic engagement requires. What Diane and I often say, and we've learned this the hard way living here in South Africa, South Africa is a democracy in which tens of thousands of people died in order to, to end apartheid. And now we're in a situation where our democracy uh, teeters every single day, and we have to fight for it every single day. I'm not sure it's that different, even in a very, very stable country like Canada. The, the, the misplaced emphasis on voting Allows it blinds us to the fact that we need to be working every day as civil society, as journalists, as individual actors to push back against what is the effective authoritarian impulse of any government. I mean, you, you know, why wouldn't you, if you were in a place of, of power, want to accrue as much power as possible uh, for good or for evil? But the point is what Bell understood better than most people is that if you 
manipulate democracies right at the voting process. You own the system. And that is the easiest part of the process to buy, is votes. Especially in nascent democracies like our own here in South Africa. But I'm not sure it's that different in, in more sophisticated democracies. So I, I guess if we have a take home from the film, it's this fact that you have to be engaged on a day-to-day basis. That's the price of your so-called freedom is not that you get to go to sleep for four years in between election campaigns, is that you need to be engaged on a day-to-day basis. And that, again, is where I think real journalism, and I I mean that with a capital R, comes into play. And that is the hard investigative work, work that takes the government and takes corporations and takes power to the mat on a daily basis that allows citizens to, 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 to effectively be engaged. It's a two-way street. You know, we have to read those stories and we have to do something about them. But at the same time, journalism um, needs to retain some of the esprit uh, from which it sprouted many, many years ago. And I'm not sure that's the case. Diana? Well, Kasha, you know, I, I, I hate to end on a, on a negative note. And I think... <laughs> In this case, we actually don't have to, although I'll be honest, there's, there's, there's been some really dark days in this process kind of questioning these, these massive things. What does it mean to live in a democracy? Is this a democracy? I've asked myself that same question many times, uh, and I still do. Uh, but I think what we, what we hope to say and influence was that it is possible, and South Africa is the example, that if you are engaged and if you, if you, do, if you are paying attention and you will yourself to to be vigilant of what is going on, and you see that people or companies or entities or politicians, uh, in this case, Bell Pottinger, um, is is being exposed for undermining uh, the very very hard won principles of democracy that this country has has just has has done so much to to get. Um, you, there, there is an, uh, the opportunity and the, the possibility of of kind of rising up. I hate using that term; it's kind of cheesy, but really rising up as a society and saying, "No, we're not going to allow this to happen. We will fight you online. We will fight you in the streets, um, and we will take you down um, because this is worth. This is too precious. This is too important, and we've we've fought too hard for this." Um, and so, I think you know, without sounding like the the rousing cry at the at the end of the interview um you know I, I take heart in the fact that we we have seen it you know for a country that is often 10 years behind the curve on everything else um in this case we were at the forefront and i think we we are a symbol of what can be achieved uh when citizens are vigilant when they take uh their democratic uh, responsibilities of being active citizens seriously um and when they stand up for for collectively for what they believe is right and in this case uh it meant uh um, the ousting of a president, it meant the ousting of a, of a terribly uh, bad company that uh, was doing bad things around the world. Um, and it meant the assertion um, and, and the proof that it is possible to, to, uh, to fight for democracy. That was your Canada Land. If you like the show, you can get it ad-free for $5 a month by clicking on the show notes or going to canadalandshow.com slash join. Please do. Jesse is our regular host and publisher. You can email him at jesse at canadalandshow.com. He reads them all and he forwards some of them to me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. I'm Kasia Mihailovich. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. 
visit them online at cfuv.ca. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.